Hopefully you're still at Luke chapter 7, the text that Andy read for us. We'll look at these two episodes in the ministry and the life of Jesus. Two stories about the compassion of our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ. As he kind of passes or crosses over the boundaries, the man-made boundaries of race, of social distinction, of societal respect. We'll see it played out in these two households that are brought to a point of sorrow. Before we look at the first story, the first, I don't like to say story, almost sounds like it's just something that the Luke made up. This is not a story, it's an episode in the life of the Lord Jesus with real people facing real life. And so before we look at this, the faith of the Roman soldier, the centurion, let's go and ask the Lord for his help. Lord, as we have our Bibles open in our laps, we come before you and we praise your holy name and we thank you for your providence of this this very day where it is that we might gather together with open Bibles. And hear your word and read it and sing about it. To come to you publicly as we gather together. We come to you with our petitions, Lord, to teach us, convict us. May your Spirit bear down upon us and within your people in ways that human words cannot. Lord, we think about the pulpits around our, uh, this city, around the area, our friends, many we don't know. Lord, I think about Jonathan and Will at First Baptist South Houston this morning. as they attempt by your Spirit to bring together two very diverse and very different congregations into one united people in that location. Father, be with their endeavors. All the endeavors that we undertake are, are, are weak at best and have no eternal significance if you do not work within them. So we pray for Jonathan and Will. We look forward to hearing tonight from Jonathan. Lord, people in pulpits that we don't know next door Father, may the Lord Jesus be held high. May your gospel pierce the hearts of those who are your people and who are not. Father, it's so easy to pray for others outside 
we pray for ourselves. Lord, we come and we get secure, we get complacent in what it is that we believe and what it is that we think and uh, pine for others to know what we know and before you know it, we are like the Pharisees. Pray, thank you, Lord, we're not like them. Lord, we're just like them. Keep us on the straight path. Lord, and teach us this morning of these two incidents. The many of us have lived through similar circumstances. Those of us who haven't will one day face circumstances like these. So prepare us, prepare us for the journey, for the battle that the world has before us and remind us that we're never alone as long as we call upon you. And we do that very thing this morning in Jesus' name, amen. Okay, Uh, this Roman soldier's faith, this centurion, uh, we see an appeal on behalf of this worthy uh, centurion. He's really a remarkable man. These first three verses, they finish the sayings as we saw last week, the Sermon on the Plain, which was similar to Matthew's Sermon on the Mount. Um, And now... uh, after finishing all these sayings in verse 1, they enter Capernaum, Capernaum on the northwest shore, the Sea of Galilee, where Jesus has sort of established the Galilean headquarters for him and his disciples and the outreach of the ministry in, in Galilee. Uh, and the Jews come to Jesus and say, this Gentile centurion is deserving of you to come and fulfill his request. That's quite remarkable, isn't it? Jewish elders, the synagogue rulers in Capernaum, pleading with Jesus to help the one under whose authority they are day by day, the Roman boot the Roman uh, uh, conqueror of the nation. The centurion will have authority over, oh, 60 to 100, depending on uh, who you read. And these centurions were the backbone of the Roman army. They're always well spoken of in the New Testament, the centurions. Well, if we were to continue on, we would see in the book of Acts in chapter 10, as the Holy Spirit comes upon the centurions in Samaria, Cornelius. Here's a a description of the qualifications that uh, Barclay quotes a historian. Uh, uh, They must not so much be seekers after danger as men who can command, steady in action, and reliable. They ought not be over-anxious to rush into the fight, but when hard-pressed... They must be ready to hold their ground and die at their posts. Uh, There are men of integrity, leaders of men, men of action. Unlike their authorities, who would be the politicians of the Romans, uh, of the Roman system, uh, kind of the difference between military and politics, politicians. Um, And this centurion who would have been a man of integrity uh, is depicted here as even so he is full of compassion. He is uh, unusual compassion towards his slave. He is highly valued 
slave who would be the lowest in the household, the, the, the slave uh, of the household, typically regarded these lowly servants as little more than a piece of property or a tool to be used to accomplish the purposes uh, of, of the uh, one who has authority over them. One writer, uh, uh, another historical reference, one writer on estate management in the day uh, encouraged farmers to examine their tools every year, throw out the old and the broken ones, and do the same with your slaves. That would be the typical uh, view or the uh, little value placed upon the servants. Instead, he's willing to do everything he can do to save the life of his, of his servant. Now, verse 2, the centurion had a servant who was sick and at the point of death, highly valued by him. And when the centurion heard about Jesus, he sent to him elders of the Jews asking him to come and heal his servant. wonder how he heard about Jesus. It is Capernaum. Jesus has already cast out a demon in the synagogue in Capernaum. Uh, but I wonder who told him. How did he hear? What, from whom? What, what did he hear about Jesus? Um, someone told him about the ministry around the city probably and then maybe someone heard the message on the plane and came back and he hears about Jesus. Maybe we'll stop and say, who did you hear it from? Who was the one who told you about the Lord Jesus? Someone did. Mom or dad from the time you were born in a Christian home maybe? Uh, friends at school, boyfriend, girlfriend, a co-worker. Who told you about Jesus? And who have you told about Jesus? Who has heard about Jesus because of, I have to ask my, my ministry, because of your ministry? because of you just living your Christian life in the world in which God has placed you. Anyway, he heard, and obviously he believed Jesus could do something because he sends these Jews uh, after uh, to, to go to Jesus, these elders, uh, the rulers of the synagogue, a Gentile sending Jews to Jesus. I wonder if he was, just thought it would be better instead of him going that it might be better if he sends the Jews to talk to a Jew who might could talk the language better. And so these Jews come with an earnest plea, verse 4. They came to Jesus, they pleaded with him earnestly, saying, he is worthy to have you do this for him. That, uh, how, you, how do you think about that when they come to Jesus and they say, Look, uh, this guy deserves it. You need to come. Uh, you ought to come because he's a good guy. Look at verse 5. Here's why he ought to come. Jesus, They say Jesus ought to come. He loves our nation and he is the one who built us our synagogue. He deserves it. I told you last week how the uh, verse 35 of the Sermon on the Plain uh, kind of caught me off guard. Love your enemies, Jesus was saying in the sermon, chapter 6, verse 35. Love your enemies, do good and lend, expecting nothing in return and your reward will be great and you will be sons of the Most High for He is kind to the people who do good. That's what I thought was going to happen in the next few words. Isn't that how we think? God is good to those who are 
good. God is kind to those who are kind. That standard uh, 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 nominal Christianity thinks that. If, as long as we're good, God will be good to us. Well, we do know for sure that whatever God does is right. But here in 35, for he is kind to the ungrateful and the evil. These Jews from the synagogue come to Jesus and said, this is a good guy. He deserves for you to come. Do you ever feel like you deserve God's blessing? God is kind to those who do good, who love the enemies. Well, sure, God is always kind. It's part of his nature. But his economy works on a totally different scale. You know, we think God should be very pleased every time we do something. He is pleased when we obey. But we think then, therefore, maybe we ought to receive something in, in, in return. You know, uh, we're here today and God should be happy about that. And he, he, he is. But I think God says, Mo, you ought to be happy about that. And he ought to know that you love him because you are here. So I, I just... Why are you here today? Are you just trying to make sure you can hold off, maybe keep his discipline at bay, keep his favor rolling? Or have you come to worship him in spirit and in truth? To know him in the power of his spirit, and in the truth of his word, seeking for God to make your heart soft enough that the word might penetrate it and change you. He accepts our worship when it's in spirit and in truth. We can become like, sometimes we can become like these, the unworthy servants in chapter 17. Uh, Jesus is telling a story. This is a story. This is uh, not... Uh, probably, uh, no, this is a story. He's teaching a truth and then closes and says, so also when you have done all that you have commanded, say, we are unworthy servants. We have only done what was our duty. We think we need a reward because we do our duty. Hey, you do your duty. As a Christian, you have a calling. Don't be an unworthy servant, as Jesus says. We can become like them and expecting to be rewarded for what is our duty as believers. It's interesting, verse 6, Look at it, and Jesus went with them. No word. He doesn't say anything. Hey, come, this guy's deserving. Jesus didn't stop and say, wait a minute, nobody's deserving. There's no, no one good. No, not one. Just says he, Jesus went with them. Uh, answering the request. No thought about, well, wait a minute, if I go to this centurion, I'm liable to defile myself if I go into his house. Surely I'm going to have to go into his house, his servants on his deathbed. No thought of defilement in a Gentile home and implicitly rejecting uh, the Pharisees' biased exclusivity. Um, and as they're on their way, just before they get there, verse the middle of verse 6, when he was not far from the house, the centurion sent friends saying to him, Lord, don't trouble yourself. I am not worthy. It's interesting, is it not? For I am not worthy to have you come under my roof. 
You got to wonder why this second group came when, G- when Jesus is coming. Did the Jews come back and say, hey, uh, centurion, um, Jesus is coming. We told him you deserved it and he's coming. And did he, oh my, why did you say that? And he sends and says, no, I'm not worthy. Sends his friends. Maybe that was it. Maybe he was horrified that they portrayed him as being worthy when when we see how faithful he is, he knows he is unworthy. Or maybe he just got impatient. Whatever the case, either way, the centurion the centurion so shows sensitivity to the Jewish beliefs, that he understood the grace and the power of the Lord Jesus. And he says, I'm not worthy to have you come under my roof. Therefore, I did not presume to come to you, but say the word and let my servant be healed. Say the word. Just say it. And he'll be healed. And then verse 8 talks about authority and what he's doing, he is explaining his faith. For I too am a man set under authority. I too am a man set. So he, he, he implies, Jesus, you're under authority, I'm under authority. I too am a man under authority with soldiers under me, and I say to one, go, and he goes, to another, come, and he comes, and to my servant, do this, and he does it. He has a proper understanding of his own authority, this centurion. He's got a boss. He's got people under him. He's middle management, you know. He's right there in the middle taking it from both sides. But he has authority, and then he has those who are under him, and he also is explaining implicitly that he understands Jesus is under authority of his Father in heaven. And with the authority of his Father in heaven, all he has to do to heal that servant is say the word, and he'll be healed. It'll be done. And Jesus gets the point. Verse 9, when he heard these things, he marveled at him. Uh... He, he's amazed. I think that's the NIV. He's amazed at them, at these words. He's only amazed one other time in, in the New Testament that I could find. He's amazed at the unbelief of Jerusalem as he sits over on the hill and looks down and we, or looks up and weeps over the city of Jerusalem. He's amazed. He marvels at their unbelief. Here he marvels at the faith. Look what he says. I tell you, not even in Israel have I found such faith. He sees in this centurion the depth and the breadth uh, and the grasp of the truth of the gospel, of gospel faith, it amazed him. And he turns to the crowd. I haven't seen this kind of faith even in Israel. That's a sad statement about Israel. Um, not, such, not found such faith in Israel. We would have thought that or hope that to find faith among those who had the, the revelation of God. God had given his word to the Israelites. They were under covenant with him. And instead to find this deep faith in him and the gospel, it's revealed in the life of a Gentile soldier. I don't know if you've ever been surprised to find a Christian in a strange place. 
Andy talking about uh, the fellow that in Austria, the farmer in Austria, I read a account, Eric Little, uh, finding uh, he, he's, uh, uh, he's in China, but the Japanese army is occupying and uh, they're checking the bags. And he opens his bag and there's a Bible in his in his suitcase. That's not good news. And in his broken English, the Japanese soldier said, oh, you're a Christian? Me too. He says it was the strangest place he found faith in all of his life and ministry. Just say the word. Faith is found here in the occupying army of the Roman soldiers in the city of Capernaum. And so, verse 10, when those who had been sent returned to the house, they found the servant well. Just kind of an afterthought. The focus of this story is upon the centurion and his faith. One group says he's worthy. There's one opinion of the... Centurion. The other, he says, I'm not worthy. And the Lord Jesus says, Great faith. I was looking back, we actually skipped a little section in Luke around Christmas time in Luke chapter 2. When Jesus is presented at the, at the temple as an infant, when his time of cleansing, uh, had come when it, uh, when time came for their purification according to the law of Moses. His mom, de- his Mary, uh, takes him to the temple in Jerusalem to present him to the Lord. And Simeon is there, and God has told Simeon, "You will not die until you see the Messiah." And so he lifts Jesus up, Simeon does. He took him in his arms and blessed God and said, Lord, now you are letting your servant depart in peace according to your word. For my eyes have seen your salvation that you have prepared in the presence of all peoples a light for revelation to the Gentiles and a glory for the people of Israel. Jesus is fulfilling and beginning the fulfillment of Simeon's prophesy, prophecy that uh, here is a light. He is lighting the light to the Gentiles, uh, the revelation of Gentiles. He's breaking down the walls of Judaism and race and birthright and heritage. So many things that people count significant, not only in first century, but in 21st century. The boundaries are coming down and he's bringing to light or bringing light to the Gentile world in this one centurion. Centurion who had sort of two essentials for receiving blessing from God. He had a deep sense of his humble station in life. He had an important position, probably very wealthy, probably a household full of servants, and yet he was humbled before God. And he had a strong and a steadfast faith in the Lord Jesus. It's interesting. This is, you know, people, some people will come and they'll come and they'll come and they'll come and uh, listen to the word, listen to the word preached, listen to the word taught, and yet never... Uh, surrender their life to Christ. Maybe that's you today. Maybe there's some here. I hope there's some here today in that situation. And the reason that you hear the gospel over and over and you do not surrender to Christ is you're proud. You're not willing to admit that you're sinful 
not willing to come to him in simple faith, faith like a child, trusting him on the basis of your word, of his word. If you're not a believer, you need the faith of this centurion. You need to come to Christ and say, I am not worthy. I do not deserve to be in your grace. But say the word and you'll give me new life. Say the word, and I will be healed of my affliction, and I will become new. The longer we walk with Christ, the more we realize maybe you're not there yet, but you're way more sinful than we than you can ever imagine. Each one of us. But also the Lord Jesus is more loving than we could ever believe. Paul's doxology at the end of his prayer in Ephesians chapter 3, to him who is able to do far more exceedingly or far more abundantly than all we ask or think. He can and does. More than we can imagine. That's what happens when we become a Christian. We humble ourselves, acknowledging we are not worthy, acknowledging we're more sinful than we even know we are. And we come with childlike faith, knowing that we're more loved than we could ever hope in Christ. So we go to the next story, the next episode in the life uh, of and ministry of the Lord Jesus. Verse 11, soon afterward, he went to a town called Nain, and his disciples, a great crowd, his disciples and a great crowd went with them about a day's journey, supposedly. We don't know. It went, went pretty quickly after the centurion episode. They go to Nain. Uh, and we have a procession uh, approaching town in verse 11. And as they drew near to the gate of the town, behold, the man who died was being carried out, uh, the only son of his mother, and she was a widow, and a considerable crowd from the town was with her. So the two processions meet, apparently right near the city gate. Jesus, his disciples, and a whole crowd who's following them from Caper- following them from Capernaum, and now we have a funeral procession. The mother most likely leading some uh, friends carrying the. It would be not a coffin, but more like a, a stretcher, uh, sort of a thing. A bier is what it's called right here, and then a crowd of people uh, behind them, and these two processions meet as. Uh, as they're coming out of the gate of the city of Nain. R.C. says there's so much, R.C. Sproul says there's so much in this story that if it's the only episode of the life of Jesus that we had, we could live the rest of our lives trusting in this, in just this much information about him. His power, his love, his sympathy over our plight, his compassion. He said that would be enough to carry us through to the end. But he's the strong Savior's compassion, the, the procession. Tragedy of life is in this uh, journey or in this episode of the journey to the gravesite. Uh, You know, there's a sadness in all funerals. Even if we, a Christian friend or parent or spouse or even child dies, there's a sadness even though we know they're in a better place, right? Uh, But this one is even more tragic. 
You know, it's one thing to lose a spouse. We say, till death do us part. In that saying, till death do us part, we're acknowledging there's a risk in marriage that one of us is liable to be left alone and one spouse will die first. It's another thing to lose a child. Uh, That's not the way it's supposed to be. That's a devastating thing for many. But here, this woman loses a child having already lost her spouse. And it's not just one of her children, it's her only child. With no spouse to go through it with her, she is on her own, left without a male provider, left without a male protector, almost assuring without the church, almost certain poverty. No social security, no retirement, no life insurance, none of those things. From a human perspective, she was hopeless. Uh, Dale Rav Davis says we might say her life had ended, though her existence continued. But I want, let's look at how Luke paints the picture uh, of the tragedy of the situation and then the glory of the solution. Verse 12, as he drew near, as Jesus drew near the gate of the town, Behold, there's the first thing Luke puts in there. If you have New American, I don't think behold is in there, but it's in the original text. Behold, look, see, notice. uh, See what's taking place. Behold this. A man who had died was being carried out. Uh, No name, just a man who died. Almost the man in this story is almost incidental. The death of the man, the man himself, is almost uh, uh, beside the point. He's being carried out on a stretcher by these mourning people. But then the spotlight turns, Luke turns the spotlight on the mother. Man was, who had died was being carried out, the only son of his mother. Very significant. And she was a widow, even more significant. And a considerable crowd from the town was with her. And when the Lord saw her, he had compassion on her and said to her, see, Luke just turns the spotlight on the helplessness and hopelessness of this widow who's just lost her only hope and means of support. Without a husband, without a son, without hope, the crowd is following her. Jesus turns and looks at her, has compassion on her, and he says to her, uh, she th- is not this the kind of person that Jesus came to seek and to save? Hopeless, helpless, destitute, or at least destined to be destitute. But he looked on her and he had compassion in his heart, or had compassion on her. Um, he was moved. A strong word, this word compassion, almost always, it's used often in the Gospels, almost always with Jesus. Here's here's a couple of definitions of this word compassion. To be moved in one's inmost feelings. To experience or feel great affection and compassion 
for someone. So Jesus sees into her brokenheartedness. And he says to her, the one who is tempted just like we are, therefore he can sympathize with our weaknesses. Yet he's without sin. You know, there's a sense in which as they come and meet, the procession coming out of the gate, the procession coming down the same road, they could have just stepped to the side and reverently or respectfully let that funeral procession go past. Isn't that what we do when we see a funeral procession? We just pull over on the side of the road. Yeah, I know it's the law and we want to stay out of trouble with the police, but, but it's a sign of respect. They could have easily done that respectfully. But that's not what the Lord Jesus did. Without being asked, he intervenes here. No indication of faith on the part of this woman. You know, quite different from the centurion. Doesn't the Lord often bring you um, help before you even ask or think? Before you realize you know it? You may not know you know it, the help comes, and then you say, wow, I really need, (laughs) you know, after the fact, it's so easy to see the providence of God, isn't it? Another quote, if, and I don't know whose it is, if every benefit received depended on our faith or prayers, we'd be poor. You know, um, I'm going to, just a side note, Notice the progression. Let me point out the progression that we have right here. The Lord saw. The Lord had compassion. His heart went out to her. And then he intervened to help her. Um, I think there's a lesson here. For any of us who are in um, desire to be involved in discipleship, uh, in Uh, helping others. Uh, We can't help others who are in spiritual trouble, who are in a very sad situation, until we're first moved by their trying circumstances. Um, Here's the words, empathy, sympathy, compassion, Pathos. But until we're first moved by their situation, we can't help. Then we can lead them out of the despair of the pit. We can help them set their feet on the solid rock of the Lord Jesus, Psalm 40. Otherwise, if we don't feel with them their situation, if we don't really gain an understanding of what's going on in their heart before we try to fix the situation that they're in, they'll become projects of correction rather than souls to be mended by the Word of God. The Lord has compassion and then He corrects the situation. The Lord is my shepherd, I shall not want. He leads me to the green pasture. And by the still waters, then he restores my soul and leads me in the path of righteousness. We need to remember that as we try to encourage one another, discipling one another teaching one another, preaching to each other. And then Jesus says, stop crying. Don't weep to this woman. Um, Her response is not recorded, but you can imagine Look back there, that's my boy back there they're carrying. 
got no husband, my only son. You want me to stop crying? Jesus is the only person in the universe who could say stop crying and not be cruel. But he's about to do something, right? He's about to take care of this situation to demonstrate he's the conqueror of death and the author of life. And so he stops the procession, touches the, the beer, verse 14 and 15, and says, young man, arise. He sat up and began to speak. I mean, who can speak to dead people and have them answer? Two other times he raises people in, the, in his ministry here on earth, at least that's recorded. Here he speaks to the young man, and he, and he sits up. Jairus' daughter is dead, Talitha Kumi. Little girl sit up and rise up. And then who else? Lazarus come forth. Just say the word. Just say the word, Jesus. The transforming work comes simply at the word of Jesus. And then verse 15, just kind of incidentally, the dead man sat up, began to speak, and Jesus gave him back to his mother, the one who needed him most. Didn't, to some, he said, come follow me. No. He gave him back to his mother. Take care of her. You're all she's got. And then one last major point that I would like to make. Fear sees them all. Is that not the typical reaction in the presence of God for those who realize they're in the presence of God? Fear sees them all, and they glorified God, saying, a great prophet has arisen among us, and God has visited his people. It was obvious God had visited his people. The centurion servant who was near death is healed without Jesus even going, just speaking. This dead young man is alive. It's obvious. Jesus could make it obvious when there's a visitation from God. When Jesus did weep over Jerusalem, he was, he, he, the last line of that passage says, he wept over them because they didn't know the time of their visitation. God visited them and they didn't even know it. They rejected him. These folks, it was obvious. For the hard-hearted Jewish city, capital city of the Jews, he did many miracles and they rejected him and they didn't know God had visited them. They rejected him. In 1 Peter chapter 2, Jesus had the ability to put on visible display the visitation of God. And I just, we can too put on display. Not by healing or raising people from the dead. In 1 Peter chapter 2, Peter is saying that the unbelievers stumble over Jesus because they disobey his word. They disobey the word, the gospel. But you as believers, you're a chosen race, a royal priesthood, a holy nation, God's own possession, so that you might declare the excellencies of his glory. And then Peter says, abstain from passion of the flesh, which wage war against your soul. Keep your conduct among the Gentiles honorable so that when they speak against you as evildoers, they may see your good deeds and glorify God on the day of visitation. We can put on display 
the transforming power of God as we live our lives so that people are prepared when God visits them to say glory to God in the highest. Now, that visitation could be at their conversion or it could be on the last day. It's hard to know which he's talking about. Jesus could give visible evidence that God visits a situation. We give visible evidence by lives that are transformed by the Spirit of God and living, as we said last week, distinctively different from those around us. Jesus proved by healing and raising from the dead, Jerusalem missed it. Are you living distinctly different from the world so that those around you will not miss the day of visitation? So here at Nain, they saw a prophet, but he's greater than a prophet. The one who speaks life into being. Jesus is Lord of all, and have you acknowledged that? Have you acknowledged Him as so? And if you do, the longer you live and walk with Him, the more you'll understand you'll find Him far greater than you ever imagined. Let's pray. Father, we thank you for the episodes that you, by your Spirit, inspired Luke to copy down, preserve for us. We so often see ourselves in these situations. Lord, for your people, I pray you would convict us. You would help us. You would empower us to live worthy of the gospel by which we've been called. That others may see Christ in us. That your transforming power might be evident. And then, Lord, not just by our life, but by our testimony, by our mouths, compel us to testify of the Christ who is above all, whose name is above every name. And we pray, amen. I stand and will be dismissed with the benediction from 2 Thessalonians chapter 2, at the end of chapter 2 of 2 Thessalonians. Now may our Lord Jesus Christ himself and God our Father who loved us and gave us eternal comfort and good hope through grace, may he comfort your hearts and establish them in every good work and word. Go forth.